This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday, time to delve into all things municipal. And boy, is there a lot. First, the question of who may have tipped off developers about opening Greenbelt land for housing. Now, some of them bought land there dirt cheap when it was still restricted not that long ago, in 2020, and now they stand to make a windfall. Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark says it was not him, though he talked to all kinds of groups. And uh, my question is, if it wasn't a tip, could it have been a big hint? And then there is the issue of giving developers a big break on development charges. Something cities say will leave them with a great big hole. And yesterday, Toronto Mayor John Tory did a deal with the province where they promised to cover any shortfall that resulted from that. And now there's word that some, but not all cities will get the same deal. But at the end of the day, taxpayers will have to foot that bill on the I think, naive hope that developers will pass along their savings to homeowners, even though there's nothing in the legislation requiring them to do so. Also, there's been a fireworks ban in Brampton and the Auditor General highlighting the increased risk of flooding because we're losing wetlands. And now it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village and Toronto City Councillor, James Pasternak for Ward 6 York Centre. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. Hi, Good to be on the show. Great. Uh, let us begin with, let's say, Karen. Karen, Hi. Hi, where do I begin? Where do I, okay, so this whole thing, now it was very strange when the Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark was first confronted with this issue of developers set to make a windfall. He kind of uh, fudged it a bit, and then, you know, a day later it was, oh no, it wasn't me. Uh, do you think that somebody had to have been tipped off? Well, I, you know, I, I think there was, a, you know, I, I, I think I can say with confidence there were many conversations that allowed developers to either be told directly or read through the lines around uh, where the changes might be made. And so whether, you know, I, I wouldn't say that he, you know, sat down and told specific developers, you know, here's what's going to change on this date. But as they were, you know, identifying areas that were close to infrastructure or within the urban boundaries or you know, setting all of that frame, those framework pieces, I'm sure there was enough for developers to read between the lines to know where the next conversions are going to be, or where the green belt would open up for them. Uh, David Crombie, I mean, uh, 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 Schreiner from the Green Party has asked the Integrity Commissioner to have a look at this. Uh, is there kind of a, a fine line between tipping them off and, as Karen said, having, you know, reasonable discussions with them that that uh, gave them the heads up to make even more money? Well, it's, I think it's worth remembering it was in 2018, I think, that the Premier... Uh, indicated to a group of uh, developers at the time that he was looking forward to carving out chunks of the, uh, the, the of the green belt uh, for development, and they all applauded. He later on, of course, said set out his undying love for the future of the green belt and said he wouldn't touch a hair of his head. We're now back to where he was, I think, in 2018, and that is he's keeping a promise to his pals in the development industry. I don't have any doubt whatsoever. I think the integrity commissioner is being asked, and so uh, so is the uh, so is the auditor general to look into it. Um, 
there is no doubt in my mind that uh, that uh, the intention was there from the beginning, and and the development industry, uh, who those who want to pay attention to it, were listening quite well when he said he was going to carve out chunks. He is doing that, and so I don't think it should be any secret that somehow uh, they all understood. They were all at the meeting. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I I was thinking that as well. That's what they were told in 2018. Of course, he made that promise afterwards. But uh, in those intervening two years, right, uh, you know, they bought it in 2020. They didn't buy it in 2018. So um, I'm just wondering, and, and um, how tight are the rules? Like, you know, what could a consequence be? The, the rules, well, the rules for the green belt. There's the they are the rules generally speaking governing the green belt um, are, are determined by what the province says they ought to be. They, they can change it and, and are changing it. No, no, and I mean can, from the integrity oh, commissioner. You know how tight are the rules about? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I really, I'm the wrong person to ask. I know there's been a request to the to both the auditor general and the integrity commissioner. They'll decide whether or not it's within the purview of their own responsibilities. But I, 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 I'm, a, 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 I'm concerned that people are not understanding, some people are not understanding, that this is a, a, a mortal blow to the green belt, because if it goes through, then, then it clearly the, the, the speculation dog is, is, is now on the hunt. Speculation will now dominate the green belt unless it's, it's brought, brought back to where it was before. Yeah. Um, James Pasternak. So, uh, first of all, there, I guess, a lot of issues with other aspects of the act and, uh, brought up one of them is that, you know, it's, it's based on a hope or, uh, whatever that developers will pass on their savings on development charges without there being anything in the legislation requiring that. Yeah, no, that's perhaps the most disturbing part of this, uh, of uh, Bill 23 was the uh, forgiving of uh, development charges on certain affordable housing, uh, developments. Now that will probably cost or could cost the city up to $230 million a year. And it was, it was done as an incentive to get uh, developers to, to build affordable housing. And then of course you get into the whole debate of what's uh, what's affordable. So, uh, there's, there's a number of different problems with that legislation. I mean, we used to have, well, we still do a rental replacement. So if someone wants to redevelop a, a rental building and add rental to it or, or a blended retail and, 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 uh, rental, affordable rental and, and condominium, they have to build, uh, rental units to replace any that are being demolished. If that if that disappears from the planning landscape, we could have thousands of people uh, pushed out of their buildings across the city, and uh, really firefights and uh, and complete legal landlord tenant legal battles for years to come. So we need to protect the fact that we need the revenue for of two hundred thirty million dollars a year to build the infrastructure so we can build housing. And we also need to protect existing tenants from eviction. And that's just the starter, uh, of course. You've well, already discussed the Greenbelt. Well, yesterday, uh, Karen, so uh, John Tory looks like he did a good deal or he did a deal with the province. The province said, well, we're, we'll cover, we're launching an audit. And if we see that, that this leaves you in the hole, we'll cover it. I mean... And and then we hear well some but all, not all other municipalities will get it. So um, I don't know. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I just, to be honest with you, I don't know what to make of how this whole thing is unfolding. I think you know as we've discussed, there's issues with the green belt. There's issues in the definition of affordable housing. There's issues with respect to the timelines and the unrealistic expectations of how quickly this can these units can be developed. So, you know, the question of, you know, what is, and we also do know that development doesn't pay for itself. I mean, there's this expectation that the city should be flush with funds because we've had all this development. When, in fact, you know, James, James Pasternak can keep me honest, but I think in the last go-round, the uh, revenue from new development was less than $50 million a year in property tax revenue that we get from new developments coming on board. So 
this is very, very expensive and very risky. And it's unclear how everyone, what's clear is the developers have gained. There's no question about that. It's unclear how everyone else is gained because the cities are going to be on the hook for this development. There's a risk that these houses aren't going to get built as quickly as we think they are. There's a further risk, as Councilor Pashanath pointed out, that renters are going to be displaced. And, and all of it, you know, again, what, you know, you think, was this really necessary? Well, we have enough land in the city. We have Downsview Park. We have Waterfront Toronto. We have conversions in front of the city for, to convert employment to mixed use. Like, there are plenty of opportunities to build the housing that we need. We didn't need to take these steps. And it's interesting, you know, I was talking to Mississauga Councillor Carolyn Parrish the other day, David, and she said that there is a pile of land in downtown Mississauga that has no restrictions on it. They can build it as high as they want, and yet developers keep flipping it, but they're not building on it, and presumably they're not building on it because the market conditions are not right for them. Yes, you have, you have to remember that the, the government's own task force on, on, on housing indicated that the, the issue was housing, not more land. That the, that the answer to, to the housing concerns is not that we need more land, we need better ways of going about the building of housing. So it's very important because the government, provincial government, has used the crisis of housing as a kind of battering ram to get more land and that's precisely what their own their own uh, task force indicated was not necessary. There needs to be other thinking done with respect to housing, but that you don't need more land. But they've used it, and they're using it against the Greenbelt, using wherever they can that they need more land. Uh, and and why do you think that is? Is this just to uh, you know to help their developer friends who possibly? Yes, of course. That, 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 I mean, I, I keep going back to it. It's a, evident to me uh, that, that they, the more land that they can say is necessary for housing to begin the zoning, the value of that land goes up for the people who own it. And a lot of those people are the, the land development industry. That's their business. This is, this is, uh, this is made, made in, in, in land development land. Um, this is not a policy that, that they thought up in terms of how do we help the public. You were trying to take, take financial con- uh, liability, for example, the development charges, Take the uh, take the development charges off the back of the land development industry, put it on the municipality and the taxpayer. Um, much of what's being, if you just follow the money to the land development industry, you will understand the basic philosophy of this provincial government. That's um, that's a, a pretty harsh assessment, uh, but that's a lot fine. of people uh, are sharing it. Uh, but the other thing is, as as uh, Carolyn pointed out. When I was talking to her about Mississauga, you know, um, it sounds like a lot of developers anyway are not building right now because the market conditions are kind of iffy, uh, James Pasternak. Yeah, I mean, we're finding that in the area that I represent, uh, where there's a slowdown of, um, of building. Uh, even though it's, it's, it's still quite robust, it's not, it's not accelerating, it's not the way it was. Um, you know, as a key point uh, for your listeners is city council has done its job. We, we approve thousands of units every month when we have our council meetings and we give the, um, uh, the developers the green light to, to build under certain conditions. And then, and then, you know, you look at the site three years later and there's still nothing on it. Um, and that's, that's really, um, part, part of the problem, market, market conditions. And the other part is infrastructure, aging infrastructure. I have, um, hundreds of affordable units being tied up now because the city does not have the money to, um, to upgrade the infrastructure around this site. Or it's going to do, it's on the capital plan in a couple of years to upgrade the, the infrastructure to get these units built. So, if we're if we're going to lose two hundred thirty million dollars a year to that's used to upgrade our infrastructure so we can build housing, we're all we're doing here is just spinning our wheels. This is not going to create affordable housing. It's not going to create any kind of housing. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, even with their numbers, I mean, Steve Clark says one hundred and sixteen thousand uh, dollars 
of every house is uh, development charges. Well, it, even in Mississauga, let alone Toronto, the average house is about a million bucks. So 900000 uh, even if they gave every cent of that back, that doesn't sound like affordable housing to me. No, no it's certainly not. Um, uh, so, I mean, there's that. And uh, staying with Councillor Pasternak, uh, just from your point of view, we all learned... I guess last week that uh, part of this was a minority rule on projects that the province likes. Uh, John Tory only needs a one third. So how is that going over with your colleagues? Well, no, it's um, it's it's very disturbing. It, uh, it it does erode democratic principles. Um, I I would say that um, most people agree that with this mayor. Uh, those powers will be used uh, very rarely and responsibly, uh, if at all. Uh, but who knows what the next mayor will do? So if this is going to go through, I'm going to be pushing for a sunset clause that this legislation expires at the end of each term and has to be renewed by the government in power. But in principle, it, it does have disturbing elements where where our democratic traditions are, are really being eroded. And I hope that Canadians are not being desensitized to that because we we operated this country over a number of uh, months. Uh, under James, what rule. I'm asking are 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 your colleagues hopping mad or <laughs> what? Well, I, I mean, I, 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 some of them are what how I just described it. They're they're deeply concerned about <laughs> the direction this is going, but. But there, there is some, some merit if they're used responsibly, and we trust this mayor to use them responsibly, uh, then maybe some of the red tape um, uh, can be eroded. But at the same time, you know, we, we do our duty at city council and the committee system. We rarely block a, a good development. Um, we, we approve those. These powers uh, are, are really unnecessary. The mayor wins almost every vote. Uh, that he's passionate about and he wants to win. Um, but every level of government has powers uh, that we'd be very surprised at, uh, but are rarely used. Karen, are, as far as you know, uh, municipal people <laughs> hopping mad or are they just, you know? Well, I, I think this is why Councillor Pasternak is a sitting politician and I'm a former politician. Yeah. Because I'm not quite as diplomatic as uh, Councillor Pasternak is with respect to what's happened. Uh, I, I think it is absolutely, I don't even know if I have the right words. Maybe David can help me find the right words. It's boring, really, that they would cede power to one-third of council for priorities that are designated of provincial interest, which is ill-defined. And so maybe some norms will... Which, which according to David, is making developers richer. <laughs> well, but not only that, it's disempowering communities in a remarkable way. Because if, if a provincial priority is, you know, is, is around, say, transit hubs, that means that the entire community can come out and disagree with either height, density, shadowing, lack of parkland, and there's not a thing the councillor can do about it because they will just not be one of the eight. And well, so there's no incentive for developers to even negotiate anymore because well, they, only need, they only need 8%, of count, eight, eight members of council. And as, uh, as you guys told me last week, uh, you know, n- neighborhood associations, well, they, we, I ha- I'm on one, uh, have, have now can appeal except the, the cudgel is that if you lose and at the Ontario Land Tribunal, you are likely to lose, uh, they will levy costs, right? For their fancy development lawyers. So. Yeah, and I, you know, and this notion that NIMBYism is at play, I don't think is fair. And I think, you know, even Councillor Pasternak alluded to it. Council passes developments, you know, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of new units every year. And so it's not like neighborhoods are standing in the way of development. They might have issues with certain aspects of development, but I don't think anybody in Toronto is saying no development. And so to suggest that the result of this power grab is because is, is laid at the feet of communities, I, I think is unfair. Yeah. Um, yep. Uh, and now, uh, the worst thing you can be called is a NIMBY. Uh, David Crombie, there, there are things that, uh, we didn't really get to 
discuss fully here um, yesterday in the Auditor General's report, and we will be talking to her shortly. But uh, there's also this issue of an increased flood risk because we're losing wetlands. For sure. I mean, one of the one of the consequences of the government and continued war against our our environmental resources um, is, is that it'll have an impact in terms of both quality, quantity and quality of water. That's one of them for sure. Um, and and the hollowing out of the conservation authority, which is the one authority which is charged with that responsibility over the years, um, that is really going to be hurtful. So we're we're in a sense we're reaping what the government has sown. Um, I, and how worried are you about that? I'm very, very much so. So the, the, the government simply has put a blind... I mean, let me be, uh, say this. In, in 1946, a conservative government brought in the Planning Act and the, and, the, and the Conservation Authority Act. And they saw those two acts as being two, par- two parts of the same point. And they saw that the environment needed to be dealt with at the same time you deal with land use planning. This government, that was a, and that was a conservative government 75 years ago. Um, this government thinks that somehow there's a war between land use planning that's good for what they see, as, as they and their friends in the development industry see, and the environment. That's why you're always going to find a consistent approach by the, by the, the, the provincial government uh, against environmental quality. Hmm. I know I'm harsh. Well, I know no. I'm harsh, but boy, I, I'm, I'm, it, it, it's got me going. I've never seen anything like it in all the years I've been involved in local government in one way or another. And is there anything to be done about it? I mean, they've got all the power. Well, you have to keep fighting. And, and there are lots of people, they're, they're already spawning uh, organizations, corporations, community groups, et cetera, around the province against their general approach. Because they, they, they set um, environmental quality of life uh, against uh, uh, land use, the way in which they see it, with, through the eyes of the development industry. Yeah. And ironically, though, I think housing and approvals, not housing, but approvals will come to a halt while bureaucrats, groups, stakeholder groups, developers, development lawyers figure out what all this legislation means. Because there was very little consultation done with the, the stakeholders. So trying to understand what all of this actually means is going to take time. And if they want housing built quickly, this is not, this is not an avenue with, with which to do it. Yeah, that is, that is kind of an irony. And James Pasternak, I want to go back to our uh, discussion on rental and how it might affect renters. And this is already happening, apparently, just because rentals have gone up so sky high that that a lot of landlords are are deciding that they need those rental units for themselves or for a family member, perhaps legitimately. Yeah. So um, the the landlord um, tenant battle goes uh, goes back to uh, ancient times, and it is certainly with us uh, today. Uh, but I think it's our responsibility to protect renters. Um, landlords clearly need the resources and need the income flow to make sure that the electrical is up to standard, the plumbing is repaired, the roofs are repaired. And, uh, you know, the, the place is clear of, uh, of bed bugs and, uh, and mice. Um, but, but at the same time, our rental stock is, is crucial to the livability and sustainability of our city. Um, we, we must do what we can to pr- protect renters, particularly if the building is, is, is going to be demolished to be re- rebuilt. So that is undermined by this legislation. And I warned councillors in the last council meeting, they're going to be spending all of their time if this if this goes through, in pitch battles between renters and landlords or building owners, they're going to spend all of their time trying to nav- navigate uh, these fights. And uh, while uh, while we are very busy people, we want to we want to be able to build new rental as well, and 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 not be bogged down in unnecessary fights. 
Hmm. And and we had heard that there was going to be a little bit of a beef up for the uh, uh, landlord-tenant tribunals, which are so backed up. Uh, but anyway, so uh, Karen, uh, you know, where does this leave us? Well, you know, the legislation has passed, so yeah. there is nothing really to be done now. I mean, I, I think there's, you know, perhaps appeals that can be launched, um, and certain stakeholder groups may in fact launch those. Um, and again, which then delays our understanding of what the rules are. But, you know, we'll go on. You know, we'll still build new housing when the market conditions improve and people feel comfortable that rate increases won't continue to go up. Um, there will be new developments to come on board. And um, But, you know, to your point, Libby, I think the bigger question is, you know, the federal government sets these very ambitious targets around growth. And we haven't really had the right discussion around how we afford it. And, you know, I would say, you know, pushing it down to municipalities to figure out how to make the federal government's aspirations real is is, is a huge disconnect, and it's going to leave people really disaffected. And uh, where that anger or voter sentiment comes out, I don't know, but but I, I do think that we need to have a mature discussion about what these ambitious targets in immigration mean for cities and how we can afford to absorb it. And, and while we're on that subject, uh, <laughs> David, I mean... The the backlog in immigration is huge. You know, how are they going to clear that? No, that's a really... It's, it's, uh, for those who are involved in federal politics and understand federal government, it's always been a problem. It's a more of a problem than even ever before. The backlog of immigration and the... Uh, and part of the part of that... Re- the backlog of immigration has always been a problem. But part of that reason is that, that we've, we've been one of the few places in the world that welcomes immigration, that looks forward to it and sees it as a benefit economically, socially, and so on. So part of it is our, is our, our desire to, to increase the levels of immigration, which we've just done this year. And, 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 but on the other hand, the federal government needs to make sure it's gearing up to deal with the, the, the processing of immigrants as they come. And that's, that does not happen at the same time. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. We are out of time, and what can I say? I hope we have some better things to talk about next week. <laughs> right now, thank you so much, James Pasternak, Karen Stintz, and David Crombie. I really appreciate your insights. Thank you. Thank you, Libby. Okay. Nice talking to you, Karen and David. Okay. Yeah, nice talking to you, James. All right. Uh, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to follow up with Auditor General Bonnie Lissick. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, we had a long discussion on the Auditor General's report, which was released just before airtime, and we focused on her assessment of the vaccine rollout. Now, today, I would like to get to other points, including issues around flood risk and also driving from the high cost of insurance to the way that highway construction was prioritized. And now I am joined by Ontario Auditor General Bonnie Lissick. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Libby. Okay, so first let's talk about this increased flood risk. And this is because we are losing wetlands, right? Uh, it's a, a combination of things, but uh, part of urban flooding can be contributed by the loss of wetlands um, because, you know, the ground is then covered with concrete or impervious material. And so uh, green space acts like a sponge. And so when you don't have that sponge and water com- is coming down in- with the intensity, um, it has needs somewhere to go. And, and that's what creates the increased risk for urban flooding. And uh, what's your recommendation on that? Um, well, we think, um, you know, one of the ways to deal with it, to adapt to this is with a back, um, uh, sewer back, backup, uh, um, uh, equipment. And so really what it is, is that construction of a home, it can cause, uh, 200, it costs $250 to put that in. Um, if you wait until the house is actually built and put it in after, it increases the cost to between two to four thousand. And if there is, a, a, you know, a, a rain, a heavy rainfall and your basement gets backed up, um, then that could cause you, you know, your insurance 
dollars $40,000, $40, depending on the condition of your basement. So we are recommending that there be clarity in the building code around whether, you know, where a sewer backup is, is, um, uh, required. Um, we know that it's not consistently asked for across Ontario based on our survey of the municipalities. So clarity around that, um, more education to homeowners about the risk of urban flooding and also better mapping on elevation levels. Um, elevation does change depending on how construction takes place. So even a few inches could make a difference if the mapping isn't up to date and, and decisions for, you know, how to deal with uh, urban flooding have to be made. Okay. You were, you were also talking about the high cost of insurance, of, of auto insurance and, and how it is uneven. Now, what, we, this is a longstanding topic and we've got, uh, Postal code, uh, unfairness is what people call it. And, and Ontarians pay the highest, uh, car insurance in the country. But these rates are supposed to be set independently. So again, uh, what is there for the government to do about it? Well, we, um, we did, um, audit, uh, the financial services regulatory authority this year. And one of the areas that they oversee is private passenger automobile insurance. As part of the audit, my audit team, um, uh, phoned a number of, uh, brokerages and obtained insurance rates for the same person with the same car and, uh, depend and found where, depending where you live in Ontario, that price is different. So, so for instance, in the same scenario, we found that it cost somebody living in London, Ontario, $1,200 for their auto insurance, whereas if they lived in Brampton, it would be $3,350. So it, um, when FISRA um, uh, works with the insurance industry, one of the areas that we had pointed out is uh, would be a good one to revisit is the territorial differences. Now, there's a new group at FISRA. Um, they redid the board, redid the senior management. I do think they're open to looking at this and discussing it with the insurance industry. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, okay, so that is uh, something possible. Uh, and you also mentioned the uh, highway construction and that the Ford government went against its own staff uh, by prioritizing Highway 413 and, and the bypass. But, um, I mean, they're a government. They can do that. And this is actually one thing that was actually discussed in the election campaign. Correct. So we, we say that, you know, government can make whatever choices they want. As the audit office, uh, we always point out whether choices are based on information. So sometimes, and you know, um, one can make assumptions about something, but then as, as more work is done on the subject matter, you can get more information and that informs you more and it may cause you to either, you know, decide to go with your original decision or, or change your mind and, and based on new information, um, you know, do, do something different. So all we're pointing out is that the Ministry of Transportation is that has the engineers that look at the prioritization of highways in Ontario and they rank them as high, medium, and low based on sort, sort of standard um, uh, a, a standard approach that they've used in Ontario. And um, they did, had a different prioritization of projects than ultimately what is being done. So some of the higher priority projects have been deferred and some of the less priority projects from an engineering perspective have been recommended. So um, the point is just transparency. We're putting that information out. There's estimates of the cost. Um, at the end of the day, though, the government has the right to make any decision they want on the highways. But um, we always, we always, as an audit office, say, you know, decisions uh, best informed by information help help to make better decisions. Well, I mean, but again, are you wading into what was obviously a, a political decision there? Uh, no, we we were auditing. Trans- we started auditing this about a, well over a year ago. And, and basically looking at the, um, the whole audit is on how highways in Ontario are planned and managed from an operational perspective. And so the report is really concluding on what operations is recommended and then really what 
uh, government has decided to do, which is fine. Um, should know, too, to say something good about the Ministry of Transportation here. The highways in Ontario are, are maintained very well in relation to the rest of Canada. So um, that does stand out. They do have expertise in that ministry to... Uh, to do good planning and management for Ontarians. Uh, I want to get back to your report on the vaccine rollout. Now, in my experience, when there are reports on a subject like that or whatever, usually the response from the government is, uh, thank you, Auditor General, we'll take a look at this and and, uh, we will see if there's anything we could have done better. Uh, That was not the response you got from the health minister, which was quite angry. Um, What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I go back to our process when we write these reports and we clear them. So the reports are all 100% vetted by the ministry. And in fact, I did meet with the minister and I did have a conversation and uh, um, there wasn't any negativity around the report that was expressed to me. I think at the end of the day, you know, there's a sensitivity and there's also sensitivity sometimes when how things are, how things come out. Um but I do think if, you know, the report, the recommendations were accepted and, and uh, you know, are going to be thought about going forward. In fact, with our previous COVID reports, we had high uptake of those recommendations um, to the point where about 88% in our COVID reports, uh, the recommendations were either implemented or in the process. So I'd say, you know, it's like anything. I think there is a sensitivity when there's public a public discussion of something. But I really do believe that the intent is to um, learn from the audit report, and that's that's our objective there. I think the one thing that I've noticed that's coming out maybe not as as fairly is that we talk in the report about wastage, and and maybe that term has led everyone to believe there's excessive wastage. All we're commenting there is that um, I think Ontario had about nine percent of the vaccines that were had to be destroyed or or um, weren't used. And that's within a range up to about 15% that would be considered reasonable. Now, at the beginning of the pandemic, there wasn't, it was, there was very efficient use of the vaccines. What happened in January to let's say June of this year is that there was less uptake of the vaccines. Um, you know, everyone was, was quite supportive of getting two vaccines. And then the amount that came into Ontario from the federal government was widely dispersed into the pharmacies who needed to be there to have vaccines. Unfortunately, they weren't able to administer all that was given. So about 77% of what we see not being used was through the pharmacies, as well as two private organizations, um, Switch Health and FH Health, that uh, came on board, I think, in January of this year to do sort of specialized vaccination. So overall... You know, it's within a realm of reasonableness. So the report, I, th- I think the report is fair and balanced, and we did get complete sign-offs and um, from the ministry. And uh, yeah, the right, minister but, at the time was, fi- was fine. But she seemed very angry yesterday. What was your reaction to that? Um, you know, I didn't hear about that until after. And, and uh, But, you know, I guess I've been in this position long enough to know there are reasons that I <laughs> I, I can't explain sometimes in terms of the political posturing or political conversation with media around issues. And I don't take it, I, I, I take it for what it is, you know, um, maybe at the time there was something that triggered that. But, um, you know, I, I feel that we did, a, my team did a good job. We had some public health people on the audit. And uh, I think it, it's a good report to read on a go, to take into account the go forward. And I think the key thing in that report, the key point we were making is, the IT side of it, you know, where it would be good for Ontario to have a, an operative central booking system in case this is needed down the road, as well as a registry of vaccination history for people, because a lot of the work around those things had to, uh, was delayed during the start of COVID. Like they needed to, they needed to develop a whole new database for vaccination um, registration. So, so I think there's a lot to be um, learn from the report. Not everything, you know, people don't like hearing something didn't work as well, but our objective is go forward. You know, we learn from our past. It's like all of us. We can we can always learn, right? Okay. Thank you so much, Auditor okay. General okay. Bonnie Thank Lissick. You. We appreciate okay. your time. Yeah, I appreciate your Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, a, a group of very prominent psychiatrists are calling on the government to put the brakes 
on opening up medical assistance in dying to people with mental illness. We'll talk about why that is when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The association representing the lead psychiatrists at Canada's 17 medical schools is calling on the federal government to delay the expansion of assisted dying to people with mental illness. And they are joining an increasingly vocal group of doctors who say proper safeguards are not yet in place. Now, as of now, that provision allowing those people to apply for MAID is set to take effect in mid-March. And Canada would become one of the only, one of only a few countries to do that. Uh, and it's a step that will make Canada's assisted dying legislation among the most liberal in the world. Now, what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Valerie Taylor, the psychiatric chair at the University of Calgary and president of the Association of Chairs of Psychiatry in Canada. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being interested in this important issue. Well, uh, your group says that the medical system is not ready for this. How so? Well, and I, I think we want to make a couple of things clear. We are not saying that this should not be expanded into mental illness. What we are saying is due to a lot of things, COVID the pandemic, other issues facing healthcare. We're not ready to implement this on the ground March 17th. There's still work that needs to be done. Excellent work has been done at a federal level, and we're aware of that, and that continues to move forward. But this also requires provincial implementation. And I think what that pragmatically means for on-the-ground providers, we're just not ready to do that come March 18th. And so we're not saying no made for mental illness. What we're saying is that we need to kind of be more involved in the creation of some of this work, this excellent work that has been done, and figure out how this gets implemented at a provincial level as well. Okay, specifically, what kind of safeguards need to be put in place that are not there now? And again, it's not that they're not there. We just don't feel like all of the work that's being done is going to be ready March 17th, and okay, even if so it's ready but, federally, we won't be ready provincially. So some of the things we need to understand exactly what it means to have, you know, the term is um, basically uh, an illness that cannot be treated. What exactly does that mean? How do we reconcile the suicide versus made experience? And again, I do believe that there's ways to do that, but we need to be more nuanced in our approach. How do we deal with forensic patients and individuals who are uh, in the justice system who are then reaching out to seek this? How do we ensure that there's going to be enough providers so that we don't delay somebody who seeks access to this? No, those are the nuances that we just need to have clarified. We are struggling with providing psychiatric care across the country. If we need to ask people to also step up and be assessors, we need to make sure that they're properly trained and that we have enough of them. And we don't want to have real discrepancies in provincial implementation of this because it's not just about what happens federally. That can be done and done well. But are the different provinces ready? They're grappling with so many other things. And so we just want to make sure that when this is ready, the system is ready. And we know excellent work is being done, but we're concerned, given that it's December 1st, that we're going to have individuals reaching out March 18th asking for this, and we're going to be not able to implement it on the on the ground level. And so we're speaking out, not against MAID, but on behalf of you know, the many psychiatrists across the country that are looking for some guidance on this and are a little bit confused 
as of yet um, with so respect to what they do. If I may ask a question, uh, can you explain the issue about um, identifying patients who are basically suicidal and asking for an assisted death versus a patient uh, who has an, quote, irremediable condition. Can you explain that issue? Well, I mean, I, I can do my best. Essentially, suicidal thinking is a symptom of a mental illness that, if proper treatment is available, hopefully will improve with treatment. That is different than somebody who has accessed all treatment and there is no hope of them being well in terms of being able to live a, a life that is going to be meaningful to them that we know they're not going to be able to improve just like with any other type of illness. But again, we need to make sure that providers are able to understand the differences. And again, I, I do believe there are ways to be able to do that but we need to ensure that people are properly trained and those assessments are really nuanced enough to be able to separate those things out. You know, symptoms of a mental illness versus a bigger picture, having a mental illness for which we know that the current treatments, unfortunately, are not going to be appropriate You know, are not going to be effective. Even with uh, the MAID that's already in place, um of for physical reasons, uh, it it can be difficult to get uh, doctors uh, to approve the process. I mean, do you do you think that will be an issue, even if they are properly trained in this? Well, I mean, this is going to be optional, and there are there are definitely people who feel very strongly that this is an appropriate course of action to expand into mental illness. I think the issue is not about. The number of psychiatrists who are about who are open to MAID, but just we don't have enough psychiatrists, and so I think that it is probably going to be an issue, especially in some of our less urban locations. And that's one of the things that we need to understand how these pieces can play out. You know, we're never going to get a unanimous consensus around this with respect to should we have made for mental illness or not have made for mental illness. There are people who are very vocal on both sides and are never going to change their opinion. I think for us, we recognize that this is something that is going to be implemented and we want to make sure that it is done properly both at a federal and a provincial level so that we provide the best care we can to patients and that we ensure that providers who are being asked for this have access to the best possible services. And we're just concerned that March 17th, we won't be there. Uh, there's apparently the parliamentary committee uh, discussing this uh, is also behind. I know that great work is being done at a parliamentary level and whether or not they feel like they're going to have their work done by March 17th, I can't speak to that. I know that they are working hard, but they've also, you know, there's a lot of issues that have been grappling the healthcare system, but this is not just about kind of approving it. It then has to be taken and implemented provincially. And I think the different provinces dealing with a number of different issues are at different states of readiness. And so we want to think about those pieces too. The health minister, the federal health minister, uh, has uh, suggested federally funded physician training for this. Uh, do you think that's a good idea? I think that would be wonderful because I think that that sometimes becomes an issue if individuals are asked to take up this training on their own free time. And so I think that that also provide some legitimacy. This is something that, you know, the government feels is worthy of organizing a funded training program for. And so I, what that will also do, I, I hope, is ensure consistency within the training, which I know that, you know, our educational bodies, both um, we work with the Royal College of Canada is the governing body for the training of our residents around many things. They're working with the federal government, and so this will ensure a consistent rollout. But those are the pieces that we just want to make sure get implemented, because 
you know, that's going to be hard to do these great ideas and the great work that's being done. You know, we don't want to see that rushed to somehow meet a March 17th deadline. We want them to have the time to do things appropriately and to communicate with us at the different provinces to make sure that we're all on the same page and we do this appropriately. A rushed launch may create more problems and derail a process that we don't want to see derailed. If this is going to happen, we want to see it happen appropriately. And do you uh, have any idea of uh, how much more time you need? And that's a the million-dollar question, isn't it? Because, again, you could say five months, five years. Um, and I, I don't think we want to put a number on it. We don't want to delay this to the point of kind of being obstructional. And we know that, you know, there are people who will say no work has been done. There's actually been a huge amount of work that's been done. What we don't want to see is that it get rushed and to meet an arbitrary deadline. Do I think that they're close? I absolutely think that they have done a huge amount of work given the other competing priorities. And I think that this is something that we're going to see happen probably within the next year. But I don't, you know, it's not up to me to create a arbitrary deadline. I think all we want to do is to be able to kind of work with them to feel comfortable that we can support this when it's rolled out, whenever that date is in the reasonable, foreseeable future. Okay. Dr. Valerie Taylor, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. And uh, that's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and boy, there's uh, a lot to talk about. And uh, I'm just seeing a tweet coming in on something that we're going to follow up on, and that is that Federal Cabinet Minister Omar al-Ghabra and Green Party leader Elizabeth May met and hosted an anti-Semite and Holocaust denier. So uh, we'll uh, try to uh, put the meat on that one uh, as well this afternoon. And again, remember, Free For All Friday coming up tomorrow. That's the day you can talk about whatever is on your mind, and I look forward to it. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.